Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors share objects that inspire their creative process. I'm Katie Brand and I'm joined by a Booker Prize winning author and screenwriter who has written 17 novels. The Times featured him on their list of 50 greatest British writers since 1945 and a number of his books have been made into feature films including the Oscar winning Atonement starring Kira Knightley. I'm delighted to be joined by Ian McEwen. Ian, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you. Now, as regular listeners will know, authors bring in objects that inspire their work. And Ian has obliged by bringing some amazing items, including a drawing of a squirrel's skull, a set of steel cups and a copy of a book called Parodies. So, Ian, we'll find out why you chose those in a moment. But first, you have a new novel coming out. It's published on April the 23rd uh, and it's called Machines Like Me. So could you just give us a brief synopsis of your new book? So Machines Like Me is set in 1982, but it's an altered 1982. Science is in a somewhat different place, partly because the famous computer scientist and theoretician Alan Turing did not commit suicide in 1954 and has has lived on to become a grand man of uh, British science. And it's about a young man who narrates the novel who comes into some money and he buys himself the very first completely plausible, highly intelligent artificial human. Adam, it's really about speculation on what it's going to be like for us to interact more and more intimately as time goes by with artificial consciousnesses. And at its heart, it has a a kind of moral problem, a drama in which a thinking artificial human might take a very different view from the human being. One of the other, I think, fascinating places you take this as well is the robots themselves are starting to circumnavigate their own programming, even to the extent that they are finding the human world too confusing and chaotic to cope with. Mm. You become sentient as a piece of artificial intelligence and then reject your sentience because it's too overwhelming and frightening. Reading about a piece of sophisticated artificial intelligence almost having mental health problems when confronted with the difficulties of being a human. Yes, this is my sense of things that In all our philosophies and in all our religions and and even in all our idle gossip, we have a pretty strong moral sense of how how to be good. But we have, and this is what the novels thrived on, all kinds of defects. It's perfectly possible that we would maybe program artificial intelligence with all our best moral behaviours and find that we've actually got amongst us morally superior beings. Mm -hmm who will find it very awkward to live among these uh, faulty people. And it's this disjunction between uh, what a machine might think, even the most sophisticated machine, and what a human might think, uh, that is really the sort of engine of exploring our intimate reactions with what it might be like to live with highly intelligent artificial humans. Yes, highly intelligent artificial humans that won't give way to context or or weakness. Where did the the kernel for this particular novel come from? Uh, I've always had a lot of interest in philosophy, and I have some philosopher friends. Uh, my, I guess, one of my best friends is a, a very uh, well known neuroscientist. AI and neuroscience have actually kind of evolved together. And philosophy has been hugely impacted by by both. 
we are just taking our first baby steps into a world in which we're beginning to talk to machines like Alexa. We're already now having to face with autonomous vehicles choices that are going to have to be programmed into these. You know, they can think 100 times faster than us and you're in a situation in which probably a human would just be going, ah, anyway, Mm. behind the wheel making no choices. We are actually handing over moral authority to a piece of software that will choose whether to run over next door's dog or or kill yourself. But the thing is, the complicated thing for me thinking about this is I'm not even sure what I would do. Well, quite. Do, would I drive into the truck or, or kill the child? I don't know. Yeah. Or would I just take my hands off the wheel and say, let fate decide? Hey, tell me this. Should parents tell their children to say please and thank you to a machine? I've sat in on parents saying, mm. if we don't tell them to say please and thank you, and I think it, it will corrupt their attitude to asking and dealing with humans. Uh, this is really the heart of uh, my considerations in this novel, that we have... A very powerful urge to anthropomorphize things around us. As the relationship begins to unfold between Charlie the narrator and Adam, even when Adam is just sitting there waiting to be charged up, even when he puts his hands on Adam's skin and he feels the warmth, and even though he knows it's kind of a kind of artificial warmth, it engages as something of a human connection. And I think this is what we're beginning to go through right now, even though we were a long, long way from having a kind of humanoid um, around because we can't even devise a battery that will run it. Even so, we are now having to just work out what our relationship to these things is going to be. We're already halfway there. We carry around now Mm. our smartphones, and they're really just an extension of our brains. I resisted a smartphone for years. (laughs) Now I... I'm there and I check in 50 times a day like everyone else. We have changed. And it's happened so fast. No wonder we're feeling a bit crazy. Well, that's why we <laughs> we do need to now think about our kind of moral situation in relation to these machines because already I think uh, for all the benefits, and they are brilliant machines, these little gleaming things you have in your hand, what are the costs? One is I think that it has somewhat eroded our capacity for solitude. One of your objects that you've brought along today is a set of steel cups. I think this might play into perhaps how you try and mitigate the loss of that solitude. Tell us a little bit about what those are. Well, these nesting steel cups are for drinking wine from when I'm hiking Mm -hmm. with a friend. (laughs) I mean, they're, they're very beautiful and a lovely sort of leather there's case. There's a leather and... case. I think there's an inscription, but it's, it's fallen off. Have you had those off. for a long time? Yeah, about 20 years. Mm. I hike a lot, but there's always been a sybaritic element to my hiking. Um, for example, I, I, my friend uh, Ray Dolan, a very distinguished neuroscientist, and I are often in ideally getting up onto some high striding ridge. And at that point, if you can open a bottle of wine and pour yourself um, a couple of glasses and walk along in a brilliant landscape with mountains stretching away to the horizon, the act of having a glass of wine turns the whole world into your drawing room suddenly. Mm. I don't necessarily get ideas for writing. It's when I escape all ideas yes, and just be in the body, um, aware of the map, aware of the directions. Because if you're on top of a mountain during the day... Unless you can get down before it's dark, <laughs> you're in big trouble. Yeah. For me, it's more about just doing that ancient 
business of getting in the present. And the cups and the pleasurable moments of raising a glass and being deep in a conversation with a friend in a high place, or or with Annalina, my wife, we do the same. Except she stopped drinking, so I have to... Oh, no. Yeah, so... Oh, no, did you discuss that first? I always think that's quite tough in a couple, isn't it? When one person suddenly stops drinking, you think, oh, God, am I going to have to do it? I have to drink for two, that's it. Yeah, (laughs) or that, or that, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, really, the act of of hiking isn't necessarily to get away from your phone, it's to get away from your work, your writing. Yeah, I mean, it it opens up a a wonderful space, because if you're concentrating on not getting lost, it's very easy to get lost in the world. And does that little sort of spike of adrenaline or, or the fresh air clearing your head or the, mm. the companionship, does that put you in the frame of mind for writing when you get back to it or is it something you do yeah. for relief? Um, it is a holiday of the senses and the mind and you do feel more up for things when you get back. No, mm-hmm. no question about it. Moving on to your next object, which yeah. you've brought along, is a drawing of a skull, a particular skull, a, a squirrel, I think. Tell us a bit about what, what's inspired you to bring that along. This has only come into my life very recently. In November, I was in China. I was in Beijing, and a young woman gave it to me, and, and she was looking at me in that sort of, so there, now you know, don't you? And I, and I said, uh, I'm afraid I don't... She said, well, you must know, you must recognise it. And uh, I said, no. She said, well, it's a squirrel skull. <laughs> and I said, right. She said, well, you wrote about it. And I said... Did I? I was thinking, oh, uh, no. <laughs> and I was thinking she must be confusing me with, you know, Will Sulfur. I did mm. some other writer. She said, In atonement. She said it's written on the back. So I turned it over. And it's about the young heroine of atonement. And here it is a quote from and it said, No one knew about the squirrel's skull beneath her bed, but no one wanted to know. So Bryony wants to be a writer. And she's also a very secretive person and she has a secret box and in it she puts all her secrets. Do you think they go hand in hand, secrecy and and writing? Uh, Yes, I do. And that's why this squirrel is in this studio now. Right. I think secrecy and writing uh, um, are related quite intimately or they certainly are for me. Walking around with a half-written novel in your head is very much like having a squirrel under the bed a squirrel skull, and you don't want to talk about it. But that secret element is crucial, I think, to the whole undertaking. And the reason I was such an early adopter of word processing back in 1983 was I just loved the way a computer can hold your entire novel in its memory faithfully and not tell anyone. Mm -hmm. Sitting there sort of waiting to be woken up again and brought out again. So the worst question you can ever ask a writer is, you know, what, what are you working on now? Mm, yes. And, um, <laughs> and so um, this 20-year-old, highly educated Chinese Anglophile girl who knew her English literature, it really touched me because she went right to the heart of my sense of what a novel is. Mm. And, and yet even as she put it in my hands, I didn't know what the hell she was on about. Well, she very subtly wanted to tell you something. She something. understood about the secret. Yeah. Yes. Because she drew it herself, so there's quite a lot of work in that. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's yeah. really beautiful. Uh, one good bit of advice I was once given about writing was that the first draft is you telling yourself the story. Yeah. And ever since I was told that, I've found the first draft much more enjoyable. 
because you're you set yourself free yes mm. you just enjoy the story you're telling mm. yourself and you think I don't ever have to show this to anyone if I don't want to the whole process is it makes you very vulnerable and that's another reason why you don't want to go telling anybody because it might just sound to your own ears even as you explain you say well there's this guy see who <laughs> buys a robot and you think oh no and you watch her face glaze over and, <laughs> and you think I'm doing the wrong thing mm. And nor do you want to be pitching it to someone. So you've just got to keep stum and uh, keep it under your hat or under your bed. Yes. So let's move on to your next object. There's a copy of Parodies, which is edited by Dwight MacDonald. I believe it's currently out of print. But um, tell us a little bit about this. I did, I, I'm not aware of this book. What, what is it? Why is it so important to you? When I open it up, it says um, Ian McEwan, Wolverston, 1965. I was at a, a rather curious small state boarding school in, in Suffolk. Uh, it took mostly working-class kids from central London, but it took a few kind of army brats, and my parents were in North Africa, so I came to this school, and I was a very timid uh, boy who uh, never put his hand up in class and was always frightened to speak. Then at the age of 16, my English teacher, or my new English teacher, told me that I was clever. And uh, suddenly I became clever. Mm. And that year, so I was being 16, I won the English prize. And this was it. In a sense, these parodies of um, Chaucer and T.S. Eliot and Milton was my first intimation that literature was not only extremely interesting, fascinating, but sort of fun, hilarious, that it could be sent up as well as written. Mm. There were quite a few parodic pieces in here that I read before I ever saw the sources, inevitably. I mean, I hadn't read enough by then. So long before I ever heard of existentialism, I read a parody of it called mm. Resistentialism. <laughs> and uh, it was basically a contemplation on how the world is against us. And it mentions the Clark Thrimble, famous Clark Thrimble experiments in Cambridge in 1934, where heavily buttered and marmalade toast was dropped over a series of surfaces ranging from silk to hessian, crude canvas. And the marmalade facing downward index rose with the quality of the cloth. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> So it proved that the world was against us. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, that cloth has a sense of uh, appetite. <laughs> yeah, feed me, <laughs> choose me. <laughs> it was full of gems like that that took me to the, their serious um, sources. Do you think it was your first grown-up laugh? I remember my mm. first grown-up laugh was watching Acorn Antiques, yes. where I, you know, Victoria Woods sketch about. Oh yes. That I got the joke that the adults got because I understood yeah. that it was a pastiche of something. There's a parody of the wasteland in there, so at that point I did know the wasteland, and I felt so sort of plugged in. You got a key suddenly yeah, that you yeah. can unlock something, a whole mm. vista of yeah something else opens up to you. I guess that's an interesting thing about artificial intelligence is whether a robot... A robot will be able to construct a joke because jokes are constructed and that there is a, there are ways in which you can construct a successful joke. But yeah. a sense of humour... That uh, might be a very important litmus for a 
Mm. a viable consciousness, whether it had a sense of humour. There are some very funny jokes in the book as well. The quite sort of stark way in which Adam makes himself ready for a night with Miranda is uh, is also yeah. very funny from a reservoir in his buttock, I think. was. A, <laughs> yeah, there's or, a lightness to it as well, yeah. which I think yeah, is... Yeah, all men do that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, oh, you all have a reservoir in your buttock. Do yeah. You? yeah, well, that's what um, <laughs> Charlie says. <laughs> we all do that. Yeah. <laughs> Well, having talked about Adam, your synthetic human, let's go to a clip from the book where we first meet Adam. He's on charge for the first time in Charlie's kitchen. Let's hear an extract from the audiobook now. He had woken to find himself in a dingy kitchen in London SW9 in the late 20th century, without friends, without a past, or any sense of his future. He truly was alone. All the other Adams and Eves were spread about the world with their owners. Those seven Eves were said to be concentrated in Riyadh. As I reached for the light switch, I said, How are you feeling? He looked away to consider his reply. I don't feel right. This time his tone was flat. It seemed my question had lowered his spirits. But within such microprocessors, what spirits? What's wrong? I don't have any clothes and... I'll get you some. What else? This wire, if I pull it out, it will hurt. I'll do it and it won't hurt. But I didn't move immediately. In full electric light, I was able to observe his expression, which barely shifted when he spoke. It was not an artificial face I saw, but the mask of a poker player. Without the lifeblood of a personality, he had little to express. He was running on some form of default program that would serve him until the downloads were complete. He had movements, phrases, routines that gave him a veneer of plausibility. Minimally, he knew what to do, but little else, like a man with a shocking hangover. That was Machines Like Me, read there by Billy Howell and written by my guest today, Ian McEwan. It's just such a great atmospheric description of of a robot coming to life, in inverted commas, before someone's very eyes. I really actually felt frightened for Charlie when I read that on some level. Did you intend that? Yes, I think it would be quite frightening. Just after that passage, Charlie comes back to reflect on the last word that Adam has said, which is, it will hurt. Mm. Can he believe him? What does mm. it mean? Um, is, it, is that just another algorithm to claim that something will hurt? So that constant switching backwards and forwards, uh, a kind of gestalt where you, you see a candlestick and then you see two faces. Mm. It's that, that kind of constant in and out of thinking it's a machine but you're responding to a human that I think would be very, very disorienting mm. and a little frightening until you got used to it, and mm. then you think nothing of it. But there's a moment, I think Miranda says something about that they're having a conversation or an argument later in the book where he says, is it an algorithm or is it a feeling? Or, or yeah. I can't quite remember the precise words, and then they they kind of, well, what's the difference? Ultimately, yeah. we, we are essentially electric currents and algorithms to some yeah, extent as well. well. Yeah, and the warmth of our arms are created chemically too. So. Yes, yeah, <laughs> so, exactly. Um, Yes, but 
we feel, and I guess this is right at the heart of humanism, that uh, we're more than the sum of those um, material things. And the big leap we've got to make is Adam more than the sum of his material things. Mm. In other words, we know he's got something that resembles a brain. Does he have a mind? And that, I think, is going to be at the core of our deep involvement with, mm. with, with such things. I was thinking as I was reading Machines Like Me how filmic it is, actually. I can very much visualise it. And I know that screenwriting has been a big part of your career and it's maybe something that people don't necessarily know so much about. Can you tell me just a bit more about that work that you've done over the years? Well, it's something I've done right from the beginning. Mm. Of my, so I wrote my first TV play in 1974, five. So it's always been a parallel existence. Mm-hmm. Then in the mid-90s, I did a couple of screenplays, one of which was uh, doing a sequel to The Fly Oh wow! Gina Davis. Oh, yes, I read a movie called The Good Son with Macaulay Culkin. Mm-hmm. And for a while, I was a sort of A-list Hollywood writer, the ruin of many an English novelist, I can tell you. But got to sit right in the front of the plane, you know, and you know, swank around. Did you enjoy all that? I mean, it's, it's kind of thrilling, it. isn't it? It's sort of thrilling. If you take uh, it for what it is. And then it all goes wrong. And even the, even then, you feel rather innocent because you've never seen people behave so nakedly badly <laughs> like they might in the court of Caesar Borgia. But, you know, they really are bad. You know, Or they're probably nice people, but it's part of their business to behave badly. So I find myself sacked, and then the director sacked, and the producer sacked, and then someone else coming in, and then some other writer trying to angling on the, my script and having to fight for it for the, with the Writers Guild and all that. Of course, the thing about writing a novel is there's no budget in a novel. No. You can write, then no, 400 elephants come yeah. over the horizon. You're God. Nobody, yeah. uh, you do write that in a screenplay yeah. and you'll have a tap on the shoulder well, in about If the budget's $5 million, then yeah. you're not even going to get half an elephant. Exactly. Doing your own stuff is, again, a sort of demotion. You are God. You you set your characters on Chesil Beach and do with them what you want. When it comes to screenplays, I'm quite a collaborative being. I I wouldn't want anyone messing with my novels, but I I quite enjoy other people's expertise. I love the controlled panic of a film set before the boredom sets in. If you're a writer on a film set and everything's going well, there's nothing to do. It's nothing to do but eat bacon rolls. I worked with John Schlesinger on uh, The Innocent, my novel. And things were always going wrong. John was quite a technophobe, and this was about a tunnel, and there were recording machines, and I was constantly rewriting scenes on set. I was fine with that. I liked it. Do you find yeah. that your brain goes into the zone very fast yeah. at that moment, yeah, and you're, yeah. you're able to just I write anything? You know, yeah. it's the, when the adrenaline's going like that, and you just yeah. have to deliver, and you find you can deliver. Oh, yeah. It's effortless. You have a sort of strange collapse afterwards, but in the moment, it's, oh, yeah. um, it's very exciting. No, I would write scenes that might have taken me weeks at home, but they needed in half an hour. I worked with Bertolucci for two years on a movie we never made. So this career has really gone on in parallel. But in the mid-90s, I read a couple of screenplays that didn't get made. It was the first time. And I know that proper, full-on screenwriters expect a hit rate of one in ten. But I couldn't live like that. And yet, and you said last year, I don't think I've ever worked harder in my life. There were, in yeah. 2018, three TV and film adaptations of your work. Yeah, I went off and wrote Enduring Love and then uh, uh, Amsterdam and then Atonement. But Atonement, I, I was an executive producer on it. I was very involved in all the scripts, but Christopher Hampton worked with Joe Wright. 
But I was writing Saturday by then, and I really didn't want to get waylaid and drawn into, you know, basically a sort of two and a half year. It's, it's long making movies. Mm-hmm. The rewriting um, is uh, the real slog of it. But when it came round to someone suggesting a movie of Chesil Beach, then I was up for it mm-hmm. because it's a short novel. You don't have to lose anything. Uh, but it took a, took seven or eight years to get that on. You know, it sort of didn't work out at first. A different director came on, then another, and then mm. then the money ran out, and something else happened, and I drifted off, and I forgot all about it, and then it came back. Yes, and then suddenly yeah. you've got five yeah. things on at once. Exactly. Mm. Uh, so it was running in parallel, and the shooting was uh, they completely overlapped uh, with the Children Act, and I was doing the first drafts of Sweet Tooth and writing Machines Like Me. So it was was. Happy, actually. I was very happy. Yeah, do you thrive on that? Yeah, do you actually yeah. really like it when yeah. there's a million things happening at once? As long as it's writing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I was fine with that. And I love working with Richard Eyre because we worked together on Plowman's Lunch years before mm-hmm. and we've seen each other a lot ever since. There's always this disappointment. I think Emma Thompson turned in one of the most brilliant performances of her career in The Children Act. But somehow we slipped through the net of all the awards. We didn't even get a mention. And it's partly because we showed it ages before at Toronto and then the London Film Festival. And then it didn't come out for another nine months. And by the time it did, everyone among the critics said they'd already reviewed it. And it just wasn't in the conversation. So with the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes and the Oscars and all the rest of it, I thought surely Emma would be. Then I looked in The Guardian it said, 2018's 400 most neglected movies or something, and we weren't even there. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's <laughs> going to be a kick in the yeah, teeth. <laughs> yeah. I exaggerate a little, but, you know, <laughs> one needs to exaggerate to feel the full blast of self-pity. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very but, frustrating Yeah, business. and you think... Even if it had been a novel that had bombed, it would at least be on a shelf somewhere. And I feel that with movies, they kind of just go into the atmosphere, even though I know you can draw them down, mm. you can downstream. Well, it's all about the campaigning with those yeah. with that award season, timing, isn't it? And yeah. just and then you have people going out and all that stuff behind the scenes that's yeah. going on. Funny little tea parties that yeah, yeah. you never even know about. You, you don't know, know anything about the tea parties. <laughs> with Atonement, for example, everyone thought, oh going to be best film, it's going to be best director. And for a while it was a front runner. And then uh, something else came along. And afterwards uh, the distributor said, we went into this 10 days too early because we never knew that so-and-so was going to release his film. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's maddening. It just would drive you mad. Uh, Quite. So uh, it's best to keep it as your sort of... Second string. Don't mm. give up your day job. Yes, exactly. And the day and, job is writing novels. And is that how how you view it now, right? Yeah. The day, that is very much your focus and your life and your joy. Yes, of course. I mean, that's the centre. Well, I mean, I think Machines Like Me, your latest novel, uh, which is out on April the 23rd, will wow people again, I'm sure. And I can I can already imagine all kinds of film and TV adaptations, if you so desire. It's a fascinating novel. I think people are going to really, really enjoy it. So I would recommend it. Do go out and get it. Machines Like Me by Ian McEwan, who has been my guest today on the Penguin Podcast. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's been fun talking to you. Good. It's been fun talking to you. Thank you.
Also, remember that if you haven't already, do subscribe to the Penguin Podcast using any of the pod players or podcatchers, such as iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud or Spotify on your desktop or smartphone. And if you like what you hear, please do share, rate and review the Penguin Podcast. We'd love to know what you think. A modern masterpiece, Eleanor Ferranti's Napolitan series, has captured hearts across the world, with the New York Times calling her one of the great novelists of our time. Now all four novels have been dramatised by BBC Radio 4. Even now I feel no nostalgia for our childhood. It was full of violence. The women fought among themselves even more than the men. They pulled each other's hair, they hurt each other. To cause pain was a common disease. The audiobook edition of the Napolitan novels is available in CD and download now.